If you think your boyfriend's a serial killer, you should probably break up with him. I'm Joe Fulgham. Terry Farrell and Perry Farrell. What's the Bundy connection? I'm Torrin Atkinson. Learn about the Ted Bundy diet. Look good and crawl your way to freedom. I'm Kevin Leeson, and this is Caustic Soda. Part three in our Evil Dudes in History series featuring Ted Bundy. Bundy, Bundy, ah, ooh. He was my second favorite character on Married with Children. Ted Bundy, which he's primarily famous for a series of killings in the like 74 and 75 range. Mm -hmm. Very prolific. Very prolific serial killer in a very short amount of time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I guess to know Ted Bundy more, probably need to go back all the way to his childhood. Sure. I got some information on that. All right. Let's hear it. He was told that his grandparents were his mother and father and that his mother was his older sister mm -hmm. by right. his family. Yeah. She gave birth to him at a, uh, a home for unwed mothers. Mm -hmm. like there was an actual house, an establishment yeah. where people would go to have babies out of wedlock back in 1946 when he was born. His father has been attributed to, you know, sailors or other military personnel primarily, mm. from what I understand. Except there's a one of the authors later on in the, the Bundy biography sort of cottage industry that sprung up in the 80s. Uh, somebody posited the theory that, in fact, Bundy's grandfather is actually his father as well. Oh, oh. interesting. Yeah. That is, uh, was there his, evidence or just wild speculation? Wild speculation, from oh, what okay. I understand. Fair okay. that it, well, he was a very abusive, very uh, violent individual. Is that... Uh, corroborated by outside evidence besides uh, Ted Bundy's words. The only uh, evidence I've heard was that that's what Ted Bundy said. Well, no, that, no there was actually um, Ted Bundy's aunt, his mother's younger sister, uh, spoke about being thrown down the stairs by him oh, okay. a couple of times and stuff like that. Sure. So, hmm. Growing up in a household where you thought your grandparents were your parents and your, your mother was your sister. I would say that's not a healthy environment. Yeah, not that's a healthy necessarily environment make you a serial killer well and, right. and actually bundy when he was very close to his execution date um started to point out to, that his uh his access to a massive archive of pornography yeah is what created the monster that he is he was at that time that was during an interview with a very anti-pornography personality though yeah i guess we'll get into it later but he seemed to sort of tailor his story to his audience yeah absolutely yeah yeah he seemed to pander bit of a showboater bit <laughs> Uh, when I think of Ted Bundy, that's the that's the term that I think of. Strangely enough, the serial rapist and necrophiliac had no problem with lying. He actually wasn't even born Ted Bundy. He was born Theodore Robert Cowell. Hmm. He took on Bundy when his mother moved the two of them to Seattle and married a guy named Bundy, and then he adopted Ted Bundy hmm. when he was like 10. Here's what I want to know. Everybody talks about the fact that Bundy never became aware of the fact that his mother was, in fact, his mother until he was well into his 20s. Mm -hmm. But why would you move to Seattle with your sister when you're like five years old? Oh, she's not my mother, but I'm going to go live with her in Seattle instead of live with my parents mm -hmm. in Philadelphia <laughs> why, or Vermont or wherever they were living at the time. I, well, I always probably found that, because your dad is throwing people downstairs. downstairs. And she's like, let's get you out of this household. And he's like, hells yeah. I don't care who yeah. it's with. Although he did have to give up that, that massive archive of pornography, which would be a major problem. 
So maybe it was the lack of availability of pornography that drove him did. off the edge. Yeah, if only he had the internet. If he had the internet, you know, he'd be just a, he'd just be one of those sad little guys living in his basement. Be a regular pervert like the rest of us. Yeah, come on, man. <laughs> so they moved to Seattle, and he lives a relatively normal life. Actually, I have one anecdote from again the younger sister, where she spoke about when everybody started coming out of the woodwork talking about stories of Ted Bundy. When it turned out that he was this horrible right. monster. Yeah. The younger sister has this story about uh, when. Ted was three years old and she was a teenager. She woke up to find that uh, he had laid all the knives from their kitchen around her on the bed. And was <laughs> the standing, blades pointing at her. The blades pointing at yeah. her and that he was standing next to the bed laughing and smiling. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And you sit there and you think to yourself, that sounds, that feels like an early warning sign. That feels like a red flag. Doesn't exactly prove anything. Yeah. I mean, it could mean he's going to be a doctor. Or a comedian. At yeah, this, you know. perhaps in an abortion clinic. <laughs> exactly. He was also a well-known shoplifter and just thief. Yeah. Pretty much everything things. he owned in his life, he stole. Yeah. Hmm. People came forward telling, recounting tales about Ted would show up one day with all sorts of new stair equipment when he hadn't worked right. in years, being a student and whatnot. And, yeah, how did you afford all the brand new hi-fi stair equipment? Worked hard. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, he would do stuff like, you tell anybody, I'll break your fucking neck. Did he do that? Yeah. Yeah. Charming. Threatened his girlfriend with death if she ever reported him for theft. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Again. Again. Red flag. I always, <laughs> I only threaten them with crying. <laughs> yeah. So please. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. I'm sorry. But I'm keeping the stuff. I threaten them with not going to do the dishes tonight. <laughs> oh, that threat is always on for me. <laughs> I know in, in high school, when, again, they started to go back and revisit his life when it turned out that he was a complete monster, they would talk to old schoolmates, and everyone almost universally remembers him as being smart and well-liked and right. popular and charismatic. Mm. Although when, he denied that himself. Yeah, although when you, if you asked Ted Bundy about it, he would say he was a loner, he hmm. didn't uh, have any friends, he didn't... In fact, he, that one, there's one quote about him not even understanding why people had friends and not being able to connect okay. with other people and not um, not being able to form friendships, like bonds right. with other people where he cared whether they lived or died. Okay. Well, yeah, it sounds like both of those can be true. Like, yeah, it no sounds kidding. like that he he was a loner, but he was really good at projecting that, oh, hey, how's it going? Yeah, good to see you again. Like, play yeah. along, kind of like Dexter a yeah, little bit. Yeah, a personality trait that may assist you in luring people into remote areas where That's you right. can club them to death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, hmm. that might be a, something that you, a tool. A tool you may need in later on for skills. In your repertoire. He's in Seattle, was it? Yep, he's in Seattle. He's and... a, uh, in the Pacific Northwest. He's uh, graduating high school, mm -hmm. and uh, he's uh, going to college, mm -hmm. and he meets a woman. Now, uh, her real name has been not announced in mm -hmm. any media that I could find, but she's most commonly referred to as Stephanie Brooks, although okay. they all say that that's not her real name. Right. But she, he, like in his second year of college. It's actually Stephanie her. Grooks. <laughs> they meet and uh, they date for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And then when they graduate, she breaks up with him and moves back with her, with her family to California. Okay. And this is basically uh, largely considered the point in time when Ted snaps. Ted starts to lose it. He starts to act more radically. Hmm. He starts to do poorly in school. He starts to uh, – this is when he becomes involved in the Republican Party. I don't even have to say anything. Yeah. This woman who broke up with him and rejected him, 
Anne Rule, the uh, writer of The Stranger Beside Me, who we'll talk about a little bit later, she is the one who sort of posited the theory that almost all of his victims had a striking physical resemblance to this ex-girlfriend is. Yeah. Right. Although he himself denied it. He himself denies it. But when you actually see the pictures, yeah. they look a lot alike. Like, they look very much alike. And in fact, every single one of them was, like, wearing similar clothing when they were taken. Mm. Uh, a lot of them were wearing the same, like, hoop earrings. Although, you, know, you talk about, they were very popular in right. 1974, there was 75. The it was the style. So, you're sitting there going, maybe that's just a statistical anomaly. I guess he's got his type. I mean, you say a guy has a type of woman that he, uh, yeah. you know, that he goes for. Mm-hmm. But he had a type that he liked to kill. This is when things start to go off the rails, obviously. Mm-hmm. He becomes a, a law student and then meets a single mother, Elizabeth Kopfler. Again, she has a lot of aliases and a lot of the different books or whatever, but her name has actually been released since. And uh, they start uh, dating and, and they actually, I think, become, they start living together and they're, uh, you know... Mm-hmm. Uh, like he's constantly talking about how he's going to marry her and all the rest of this stuff. And, um, and this relationship goes on throughout the entire – Yeah. Like basically they, throughout – almost until the end of his life. Yeah. Like they, they start dating in like 1971 and they are, they are living together when he is arrested in 75. So wow. um, she was his main squeeze all the way through the – Atrocities. The atrocities. That's a better way to put it, right? But – at the same time that he is dating Elizabeth in Seattle, he visits his ex-girlfriend Stephanie in California, and she's so impressed by how he's turned his life around, how he's become a law student and a very active in the Republican Party, and he's very confident, and she actually strikes up another relationship with him. He starts dating her again, and they date for like another solid year, and he keeps promising that they're going to get married, and he's got these two fiancés in different states, wow. and then... At one point in time, he uh, they're talking about getting married or whatever, and then he cuts off all contact. And they don't talk for like a month, no contact whatsoever. And she finally reaches him by phone. You know, what's going on, Ted? Like, why have you cut me off like this? And he's just like, I just felt like it. And in later interviews, he would admit that he the only reason he struck up a relationship with this woman again was to prove that he could make her want to marry him. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that he could specifically break up with her. Now, she's still alive? She is. So she kind of got off easy. Yeah, you know, I mean, actually, both the, except for living with guilt, probably for the rest yeah. of her life. Both the the significant women in his life. I mean, these two are like pretty much the most. Significant Not saying that she should live with guilt, but she probably did live. Yeah, with guilt. probably I, a little I, bit. Not her fault. Who could no. know? No, absolutely. But they, uh, the two significant women in his life, like never really firsthand experienced any of any uh, directly violent behavior. Like they saw, they saw hints of it. They there was. Weird things going on, but neither of them were actually assaulted by him, were abused by him. Now, he lived with one of them, right? Correct. Didn't he keep, like, mementos? Like, heads? Uh, That was only in his apartment where he wasn't living in the same state. But in the apartment where he did live with her, he had a garbage bag full of women's clothing. Hmm. Which, when, when she was interviewed by the police years later, she thought was odd. Yeah, nothing weird about... I have some... I'm No, never mind. Uh, in 1971, he took a work-study job at Seattle's Suicide Hotline Crisis Center. Oh, I love this. Yeah. Where he met and worked alongside a Anne former Rule. Seattle police officer and future crime writer, Anne Rule, who would later write one of the definitive Bundy biographies. Uh, yeah, so how ironic is it that Ted Bundy, one of the most prolific serial killers in human history, worked at a suicide hotline? I know. It kind of like strikes you as one of those things you expect him to maybe, you know, goad people into it. Yeah. You know, but like, like really subtly. 
even in the movie and certainly in the book, she uh, Anne Rule points out that she didn't see it coming. Like he always seemed very caring in the phone conversations. She always thought that he was sympathetic and was actually kind of suited for the work. Hmm. Right in the movie, they kind of allude to the fact that maybe he had some sort of like sinister ulterior motive, but it you know it certainly wasn't presented as fact. Yeah, he's famous for his crime sprees through the. 74 and 75 mm-hmm. but on the last day of his life he told attorney Polly nelson that he had attempted his first kidnapping in 1969 but did not kill anyone until sometime in 1972 but earlier than that he told one of his psychiatrists that he'd killed two women in uh, atlantic city in 69 while visiting from philadelphia and in his penultimate interview with uh, king county detective robert keppel he mentioned a homicide in 1972 and another in 1973 involving a hitchhiker, uh, but refused to elaborate. Anne Rule and Robert Keppel believe that he may have started killing as even as early as his teen years. So what was his first confirmed kill? His first confirmed assault was on January 4th, 1974, when he entered the basement bedroom of 18-year-old Joni Lenz, uh, a student at the University of Washington. He bludgeoned her with a metal rod, which was part of the, her own bed frame, and then sexually assaulted her with a speculum. Uh, causing inst- Those are glasses, right? <laughs> causing extensive internal injuries. She remained unconscious for 10 days, but ended up surviving the attack just with permanent brain damage. And a month later, she again, late at night, she broke into the room of another University of Washington co-ed, Linda Ann Healy, and beat her unconscious, then uh, dressed her and carried her away where he ended up disposing of her. Linda Ann Healy was not a weather reporter, but she broadcast Seattle's weather reports for skiers on the radio each morning. So I guess she was kind of a weather reporter. Yeah, a, weather a, reporter a radio weather ski yeah. report. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then uh, basically uh, young college students started disappearing at the rate of about one per month for a significant chunk of time. Joni Lenz was attacked on January 5th, 74. On February 1st, Linda Ann Healy was abducted. That's about a month later. March 12th, Donna Manson was abducted. She was a 19-year-old student at the Evergreen State College in Olympia. April 17th, Susan Rancourt was abducted from Central Washington State Campus. May 6, 1974, Kathy Parks was abducted from the campus at Oregon State. June 1st, Brenda Ball was abducted from Burien, Washington. From the Flame, Tab- Flame Tavern. There you go. June 11th, Georgian Hawkins was abducted from an alley behind her boyfriend's University of Washington fraternity house. Then on June 17th, so this is actually stepping up. This is no longer once a month. This is bi-weekly. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, is that every two weeks or twice a week? That's every two weeks. Okay. So on uh, July 14th of 1974, on the same day in two separate incidents, he kidnapped two women. On the same day. And this is during the day. This is broad daylight at a, uh, a crowded sort of family vacation spot. It's Lake Sammamish uh, State Park. In Issaquah, Washington. In Issaquah, Washington. All of his previous abductions have been at night. There are scores of witnesses to these abductions because it was during the broad daylight. It was incredibly crowded where they were at. They were... And he was going around with his sling or whatever, asking people for help loading his boat loading his boat that's right that he couldn't get his boat onto his car because he had a cast on his arm and uh would get them into his car in fact later when he started to really get into the details of his crimes in order to get stays of execution like he was he was later on when he was getting close to the end of his life he was 
basically using his his the details of his crimes as bargaining chips to get stays of execution. So yep. like families would beg the governor to like give him a stay so that they could find out if he'd killed their daughter or mm. where her body was or you know what what exactly had happened and whatever. And in one of these interviews, he admitted that on the day that he kidnapped both uh, Janice Ott and Denise Nasland, that both of them were alive at the same time, and uh, one of them was forced to watch him rape, brutalize, and murder the other girl. Oh, man. So <clears throat> it's at this point in time when I emailed the two of you and uh, yeah. told you that uh, I thought Ted Bundy rightfully belonged on the list of most evil dudes in history. Yep. And uh, I, I, believe, that email. I believe that email ended up with fuck this fucking fuck. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and that was when Joe decided to do no more research because yeah. he wanted to get. A, a, I was like, I need to hear this stuff live firsthand and, and be grossed out. On September 2nd, uh, he kidnaps and murders a Jane Doe, a woman who's never identified. On October 2nd, 1974, he abducts Nancy Wilcox. But something happens in between those two abductions. On September 6th, two grouse hunters stumbled on the skeletal remains of Ott and Naslin oh. near a service road in Issaquah. Also found were an extra femur and several vertebrae later identified by Bundy as George Ann Hawkins. Uh, six months later, the skulls and mandibles of Healy, Rancourt, Parks, and Ball were found on Taylor. Is that, is that jumping ahead too far now? No, 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 that's fine. When we get into the necrophilia, we'll point out that this site, which was particularly remote, Bundy revisited on numerous occasions with the express purpose of having sex with the bodies mm -hmm. until, and I quote, they became too putrefied for him to continue. Oh, man. See, that's... Yeah. Uh, and as well <clears throat> putrefied do you have to be really yeah you know i don't know I, for me personally i think putrefied at all is like, too putrefied like you're saying once they're dead you cross the that's you crossing cross the line. line yeah absolutely that, that no no amount of preservation is gonna is gonna make them less putrefied in my mind yeah. Oh. And the, the four skulls and mandibles that they found on a nearby mountain as well, it's largely, uh, it's now accepted that those were the heads that Bundy has kept his, had kept his trophies for a while mm -hmm. in his home. And uh, so he had decapitated some of his victims. And then once they had become too putrefied to keep in his home any longer, he took them out into the woods and uh, abandoned them on a mountainside. So that's why there are four heads that are all found together, but no associated bodies. Wow. Uh -huh. Oh, here's a little tidbit. This is uh, from a Wikipedia article where they have a picture of Bundy's tan Volkswagen. Nice. Uh, and they point out that his 1968 Volkswagen Beetle, the venue for many of his crimes, is on display at the National Museum of Crime and Punishment. Yep. I would kind of like to go on record that even though we have this evil dudes in history, how shall I put this? Having looked at YouTube videos and, and, and reading comments, and even during the time that he was alive and on trial... There were people who would idolize him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I no, do I remember not that. understand this at all. And there all. are people who say he was very charismatic and he was very handsome. And that's one of the reasons he got away for so long with all these crimes. Yeah. Mm. First of all, I don't see that having watched any. I mean, maybe just be after the fact. Yeah. Having you're, seen any, you're sort of any editing interview in with him, I, I find to be very creepy. Yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. And secondly... It is a tragedy that he that people like this are known and remembered over the victims that they have killed. 
Yeah, absolutely. And glorified and have books published over him. So in a way, I, I do kind of feel guilt for even having this kind of a... I think in our broadcast, we are doing the exact opposite of glorifying him. It's true. Yeah. I mean, we're kind of talking about what an asshat this guy was. Yeah, and we're making a po- I, I would like to make a point of mentioning each of these people's, these victims' names and giving some information about right. them. Yeah. Because they are not just statistics. Uh, on October 18th, a mere 16 days later, Melissa Smith, the 17-year-old daughter of Midvale's police chief, Oof. disappeared after leaving a pizza parlor, and she was found on a mountainous area nine days later after having been beaten, raped, sodomized, and strangled. Uh, in fact, post-mortem examination indicates that she may have remained alive for up to seven days following her disappearance. Uh, on October 31st, Halloween. Amir, 13 days later, Lori Aim, also 17, disappeared after leaving a Halloween party and was found raped, sodomized, and strangled. And now, now we get to the beginning of the end, although there's still a lot more crimes to go. But uh, in, in November, uh, uh, on a November evening, uh, Bundy approached 18-year-old telephone operator Carol Duranch. Passed himself off as a police officer, called himself Officer Roseland, said that somebody had been caught breaking into her car. and She, that, was, she was hanging out at a mall. She was hanging out at a mall, and he said that she needed to come down to the police station to give a report. In his Volkswagen bug. Yeah, she thought it was odd that a police officer was driving a Volkswagen bug, but she got in the car anyway. When uh, they were a couple minutes away, Deranch pointed out that Bunny was driving on a road that did not lead to the local police station. He merely pulled over and attempted to handcuff her. During the struggle, Bundy had inadvertently fastened both cuffs to the same wrist, and Deranch managed to get the door open and escape. Apparently, he also pulled out a handgun, and the bullets fell out of the gun. Oh, okay. I read somewhere. I hadn't heard that part of the story. But suffice to say, Carol Deranch uh, escaped, managed to escape, Good. and would eventually become a key witness in, uh, in uh, a couple of his trials. All right. Sounds so, like he was a little bit of a keystone creep there. Yeah, you know, no, oops, that one. I totally got both cuffs on the same wrist. Well, oh, the bullets fell out of my gun. I'm sure she was struggling madly enough that uh, yeah. he couldn't get the job done the way he would have liked. Good for her. In fact, uh, later that same evening, uh, Debbie Kent, a 17-year-old Vermont, Viewmont high school student, disappeared after leaving a theater production at the school. And, uh, in fact, at the site of that abduction, investigators found a key outside the auditorium, which it turned out unlocked the handcuffs that they had retrieved from Carol DeRanch earlier in the same day. Oh, oh. So that's a pretty uh, key forensic piece of evidence to connect the two events. Carol DeRanch was the lucky one in that equation. And, in fact, Debbie Kent's remains were never found. Oh, so that was in 1974. Now, an interesting tidbit in 1974. In that November, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Klopfer, his live-in girlfriend, mm-hmm. read in the paper that young women were disappearing in towns around Salt Lake City, and uh, she called King County Police. In fact... Because he had moved to Salt Lake City for his, for uh, his law, law school. school. After the, uh, the two disappearances in July, King County detectives had finally got a uh, detailed description of the suspect as his car because it was in broad daylight. There were yep. so many witnesses and that they had posted flyers all over the Seattle area with a composite sketch printed on newspapers and broadcast on local television stations. And Elizabeth Cloffer and Rule, a, another DES employee and a University of Washington psychology professor, all recognized the profile, the sketch and the car and reported Ted Bundy as a suspect. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, however, the police who were receiving up to 200 tips a day initially thought it very unlikely that a clean-cut law student with no adult criminal record could be the perpetrator. So he was shuffled to the bottom of the list because... Because of his good looks. He didn't seem like the kind of guy who would be a serial rapist and murderer. The other thing I wanted to mention is that for all of his cleverness, 
uh-huh. for his, his way of um, luring his planning, victims. planning out. Uh, he seemed to be the, an expert in not leaving any evidence yeah, at the crime that, scenes. That's a really important point. Ted Bundy never left a single fingerprint at any of his crime scenes for his entire spree. And yet he would use the same car. Yeah. And he would introduce himself to, as Ted. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, one of the ways. To many, to like a lot of the girls on the beach that mm-hmm. he talked to. When they ended up building the database, they put in one of the, uh, one of the, the factors as the, he may in fact be named Ted because he always right. introduced himself as Ted. And uh, that was one of the things that launched him to the top of their list. Yeah, I heard about this. They this was back in this was at seventy five when he was finally Finally arrested. Yeah, they actually decided to set up a database on the payroll computer. Yeah, which was this big, huge, clunky thing uh, by today's standards. And And it wasn't suited to that purpose at all. No, they they re they they said we've got all this data. Let's try it. So they put in like classmates and acquaintances of each victim, Volkswagen owners named Ted, uh, known sex offenders and all that kind of stuff. And like out of the thousands of names, 26 turned up on four separate lists. Yeah. Uh, one of those was Ted Bundy. And then uh, they also manually compiled their own 100 best sub- subjects. And, and he was on that as well. Yeah. He was near the top of the list at that stage of the game. Yeah. But this was um, before that even happened. Elizabeth Klopfer, uh, having read that young women were now disappearing in town surrounding Salt Lake City, where... She knew that Ted was living, yeah. uh, called the King County Police a second time, and was interviewed in detail. Uh, but the uh, Lake Sammamish witness, considered most reliable by detectives, failed to pick Ted out of a photo lineup, and, uh, and so was, was pretty much dismissed. And in December, Klopfer called the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office and repeated her suspicions. So she is now reported Bundy. Three as, times as a possible suspect, three different times. The part that annoys but still me, living with him. The part that annoys me about this is that she reports him to different police agencies three times as a possible serial rapist and murderer, mm-hmm. but she doesn't break up with him. That could be fear, couldn't it? No, because he's living in Salt Lake City. She's living in Seattle. It wouldn't be that hard to move. You know what I mean? All right. Uh, I mean, Bundy returned to Seattle after his final exams and spent a week with Cloffer, who did not tell him that she had reported him on three separate occasions to the police. And they made plans to visit each other in Salt Lake City in August. So in 1975, Bundy shifted much of his criminal activity eastward to Colorado. So Colorado and Utah. and But not uh, living there. But not living there. So now we're in, the, we're in 1975. And on January 12th, he abducts Karen Campbell who is a, uh, a wife and mother, and she goes up to her hotel room to get a magazine and doesn't come back down to the lobby and is never found again. At the Wildwood Lodge in Snomus. She was killed by blows to the head from a blunt instrument that left distinctive linear grooved impressions, and her body had deep cuts from a sharp weapon. So on, on March 15th of 1975, Vail ski instructor Julie Cunningham disappeared while walking from her apartment to a dinner date. For weeks, he made the six-hour drive from Salt Lake City to where he had disposed of her body to visit her remains. And uh, Denise Oliverson, 25, disappeared near Grand Junction on April 6th while riding her bicycle to her parents' house. And on May 6th, Bundy lured 12-year-old Lynette Culver from her junior high in Pocatello, Idaho, and took her to his hotel room where he raped and drowned her. That's a different... uh... Different kind of strangling. So yeah, so he's averaging one a month. You know, it's kind of, uh, it's clipping along at a pretty good pace. And on June 28th, Susan Curtis vanished from the campus of BYU, Brigham Young University. Curtis's murder ended up becoming Bundy's last confession. 
just moments before he was led down the hall to the execution chamber, he copped to Curtis's murder. So that's how she became one of the, the 30 confirmed. Right. And the uh, the bodies of Wilcox, Kent, Cunningham, Culver, Curtis, and Oliverson, so those like five in a row, none of those bodies were ever recovered. Hmm. Those were the ones that he was kind of holding in check. Hey, I'll tell you where they are if you uh, give me some more time. Yeah. This is where we, we tumble down towards the end of his journey because in August 1975, he was arrested by Utah Highway Patrol after failing to pull over for a routine traffic stop. And that's where they found all the stuff in his car. Yeah, yeah. All what they call burglary tools. But it's amazing how burglary tools and murdery tools, very similar. Mm. Very similar in scope and whatnot. Like, for instance, he had a, um, he had a ski mask, a pantyhose mask, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, an ice pick. So, you know, I mean, you could use an ice pick to jimmy a window, mm -hmm. or you could use it to stab somebody. Or you could use or, it to pick some ice. This is the awesome part, because at this point in time, they'd already done that computer simulation. They yeah. already knew that he was at the top of their suspects list. They already had, you know, composite drawings of him in three or four different states. they already done this. After this stop, he was released on his own recognizance. Well, they did a search of his apartment and found nothing sufficiently incriminating yeah. to hold him. So they released him on his own recognizance, not even bail. But he said later that they missed a bunch of stuff. They missed some Polaroids of his victims yeah. in the apartment. He had like a box full of Polaroids of his victims. He took pictures. Oh, yeah. He took Polaroids of all his victims. Oh, man. Uh, you'd like to hear his Polaroid quote? Sure. It's a doozy. <laughs> I don't, but for the show, yes. He took Polaroid photos of most of his victims because, and I quote, when you work hard to do something right, you don't want to forget it. That should be the Polaroid slogan, I think. Yeah. That's why it was the Polaroid slogan if for they, so many years. If they'd had that slogan, maybe they wouldn't have gone out of business. So, of course, when they let him out of his own recognizance, he raced back to his apartment, took his box of Polaroids and destroyed them. Uh, it was at this point in time that the, that the police went to interview Elizabeth Klopfer and basically build a profile on him so they could – they pretty much knew that he was the guy. Yeah, they just needed to gather enough evidence so they could prove it, right? Yeah, exactly. So this is the point in time where they, they – she talked about how he had a set of crutches when he'd never been hurt, the plaster of Paris, uh, a meat cleaver, which he'd packed with him when he moved to Utah, boxes of surgical gloves, uh, an oriental knife in a wooden case – and a sack full of women's clothing. Uh, she, she mentioned uh, that Bundy became very upset several times whenever she considered cutting her hair, which was long and parted in the middle. Mm -hmm. But he uh, doesn't have a type. No, sir. No, siree, Bob. And uh, examination of, of Klopfer's calendar and cancel checks revealed that Bundy had never been with her or in her presence on any of the nights during which any of the Pacific Northwest victims had vanished, nor on the day of July the 14th, the day that the two victims were taken from Lake Sammamish State Park. Now, didn't he also, pretty much after most of the murders, call her, like, late in the night? Almost as if he was like, maybe he did feel a little bit, bit of guilt or, for it, or just wanted to kind of calm down and relax and get back into his normal life, or for well, whatever reason. <clears throat> he seemed to have called her, like, she would get phone calls in the middle of the night consistently after these after these horrible murders. Well, and he did talk later on about the fact that he made sure that whenever he felt a murderous urge, that he would distance himself from, right. from the woman that he was with at the time because he didn't want to accidentally kill her because that would be much easier to catch him. Right? Wow. I thought it might actually go to something almost touching, but it was just cold and calculating. This is one of the common themes in the books about him and 
and the movies. He's always always called the deliberate stranger or the stranger. Yeah, because mm-hmm. he would he would never murder anyone he knew. Yeah, no. Mm-hmm. He was kind of the reason the term serial killer was coined. Right, in my understanding. Yeah, because the fact that he purposefully targeted complete and utter strangers, and that's what made it specifically made it most difficult to try and find him because there was no previous contact between them whatsoever. Mm-hmm. The term serial killer was coined in the mid-1970s by Robert Ressler, an FBI behavioral science unit agent. Uh, before it was known as a serial killer, it was referred to as a stranger killer because the killer's victims were usually unknown to him. But Ressler concluded that sometimes the killer did kill people he knew, so the word serial applied to this sort of killer. Not terribly so in Bundy's case. Yeah. Here's the thing. Like, he wasn't a dumb guy, obviously. The fact that he could write the exams, get into law school. Yeah. The fact that he, like... And it was almost like he was setting himself up. Like, he knew he was going to be doing this. Yeah. He took the psychology course. Yeah. He has, you know, he had a minor in psychology. He did all the legal work. Yeah. It's very clear. I mean, he ended up defending himself at every single one of yeah. his trials, yeah. right? Like, he's not a dumb guy. And so the fact that... His fingerprints were never found at any crime scene of the dozens and dozens and dozens of crime scenes that he was involved in. Mm-hmm. The fact that if not for his surviving victims, he may not have been convicted at all. Right. Right. It wasn't really through any fault of his own that he was caught. Yeah. I mean, for the it, most was, part. it was a routine traffic stop and then he searched his car. Yeah. Right? And then that's what sort of like led to the downward spiral. Right. So suffice to say he's in jail in late in mid 1975. He's uh, being charged uh, in the kidnapping of Carol Durand. She en- ends up getting convicted and sentenced to one to 15 years. And then they go to try him. At this point in time, they had, you know, started to really gather evidence in the murder trials. And they were going to uh, they're going to try him and that sort of stuff. And this is where he makes his first escape. Wow. Because he's his own lawyer, he gets access to the law library where he's not in uh, handcuffs or, sh- or leg shackles. And he jumps out a window. And runs away in Colorado. It was like a second-story window, though, yeah. wasn't it? And he, and he sprained his ankle? So badly sprained his ankle, but he still ended up at large for uh, six days. So that was his first escape. He, so he's put back in jail where he uh, ended up getting a hacksaw blade, and he cut a hole in the roof of his cell. Yeah. And in the course of a couple of weeks, managed to lose 35 pounds so that he could actually squeeze through that hole. And he crawled out through the roof and dropped down into a janitorial closet. It was the linen closet of the jailer's apartment. So he, yeah, so he walked out the front door. They didn't actually discover that he was missing for 17 hours. Mm -hmm. And by the time they discovered he was missing in Colorado, he was already in Chicago. Wow. And uh, that's when he decided that he was going to make his way to Florida. And he did. He he arrived on January 8th, 1978. So he'd been in jail for... uh, two and a half years at that point in time on his different charges and court cases, all the rest of that stuff. He rented a room under the alias of Chris Hagen in a boarding house near Florida state university. Isn't that like an alcoholic renting a room above a bar? Yeah. He claims in, in retrospect that he went to Florida to basically to go under, to not get caught again. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Blendy later said that he initially resolved to find a job and refrain from any further criminal activity knowing that he would probably remain free and undetected indefinitely as long as he did not attract the attention of the police. How did that work out for him? Well, he applied for one job at a construction site, and when asked for personal information or identification, 
He departed, and this was his only attempt at job hunting, and he quickly reverted to shoplifting and purse snatching to <laughs> make his living. So he arrived in Florida on January 8th, and on January 15th, he broke into Florida State's Chai Omega or Chai Omega sorority house, where he bludgeoned Margaret Bowman with a branch from an oak tree. Then while strang- she slept. While she slept and strangled her with a nylon stocking. He then uh, turned on 20-year-old Lisa Levy. Beating same her, night. Same night. Uh, beating her unconscious and tearing off one of her nipples and biting deeply into her left buttock. Uh, this will be important later. This will be important later. And sexually assaulting her with a hairspray bottle. Uh, she died the next morning on the way to hospital from her many injuries. He went into an adjoining bedroom where he attacked Kathy Kleiner who suffered a broken jaw, deep shoulder lacerations, and Karen Chandler, so they were roommates, obviously, who suffered a concussion, a broken jaw, loss of her teeth, and a crushed finger. After leaving Chi Omega, he broke into an apartment building eight blocks away and attacked a student, Cheryl Thomas, dislocating her shoulder, fracturing her jaw and her skull in five places. Although she survived, she was left with permanent equilibrium damage and brain damage. That ended her dance career. Yeah. So in one week after he resolved to lay low, seven days to the day that he resolved that he was going to get a job, lay low, not do anything else criminal, and live out the rest of his life. Five attacks in one night. Five attacks in one night leading to three homicides and two women left with grievous injuries and permanent brain damage. Suffice to say, that didn't go well. On February 8th, so less than a month later, he drove to Jacksonville in a stolen van and approached 14-year-old Leslie Parmenter, the daughter of a Jacksonville police detective. He identified himself as a firefighter, but when her older brother arrived to pick her up, he fled the scene, and then that was reported Mm. as weird. But the next day, they didn't catch him quickly enough, because the next day, he abducted 12-year-old Kimberly Leach, who had uh, gone back to her homeroom to retrieve her purse, but was never seen from again. My niece is 11. Yeah. On February 12th, three days later, he was stopped by Pensacola police officer David Lee after he checked the car and found out that it was stolen. When the officer told Bundy that he was under arrest, Bundy kicked the legs out from under him and fled. Lee fired a shot at him, and Bundy pretended to be hit and go down. When the officer approached him to cuff him, Bundy assaulted him and tried to grab his gun from him, at which point in time he was eventually subdued. And uh, when, when the officer was transporting him to jail... Bundy reportedly told him, I wish you had killed me. And this is when he's finally caught and is actually brought to justice. So that is the end of the story as far as Bundy's crimes are concerned. I mean, the teeth imprints that he left on one of his murder victims at the sorority house Mm -hmm. is what really did him in because he's got, uh, I guess, very unique teeth. And it was quite plain that the Mm -hmm. teeth imprints that he left on both her nipple when he bit it off Mm. and her buttocks when after he'd murdered her that they were, in fact, left by him. Right. Uh, as well as there was an eyewitness at the house who had stayed in hiding and, and could identify him later. And so he was rightfully convicted of both uh, that murder and the murder of the 12-year-old because they found fibers from his jacket, his jacket. Uh, on her. This is the only forensic evidence he ever left to any of his crimes. And so he was convicted of both of those. I mean, the really strange part about this whole thing is that uh, one of his longtime paramours uh, actually... He brought her in as a character witness during the sentencing phase and actually proposed marriage to her on the stand, and she accepted. And because there was a judge present, it was automatically enforced by this weird loophole in Florida law. Again, alluding to the fact that Bundy's no dummy. Yeah. 
she ended up siring a daughter by him in 1982. That's probably the thing that blows my mind the most about that Ted Bundy has a living daughter and that somebody would be okay with that. The woman who married him on the stand, yeah, ended up having a kid with him. No, and... that she's okay with marrying and and giving him a daughter. Yeah. Yeah, well, she divorced him in 1986 after she finally came to the conclusion that he was guilty of his crimes. Up to that point in time, she hadn't believed it. Oh. Until in 1986 was when he started confessing to crimes in order to exchange for stays of execution. Right. So he'd be like, hey, if you give me some more time, I'll tell you about some more victims. Yeah, right. Because all throughout his trials... He kept saying, you, know, you don't have any forensic evidence. Yeah, and, and he also, you know, despite the advice to take guilty pleas for shorter sentences and whatnot... He would never like. There was one point he was like agreed to that, yeah, and then at the actually, last minute, that's right. They, he would not admit. They offered him a plea bargain in Florida that they would take the death sentence off the table if he if he pled guilty and right. and, and and provided information. provided information about all of his crimes. And most of the people from his life believed that he was innocent. Yeah, despite and then, this overwhelming evidence. So he he refused to give uh, testimony, and so then the death sentence was put back on the table, and that's what he was eventually executed for. But he had an opportunity to actually escape the death sentence, and he chose not to. So it's not – in fact, even in his later interviews where he's giving interviews and confessing to stuff, they, they said one of the weirdest things was he never couched it in first person. He never said, I did this right. and I did that. He always talked in the impersonal third person. This is where he comes up with some of his really great quotes where he talks about uh, the big payoff for him was uh, possessing uh, things, right? That's why he was like a shoplifter at an early age. And possession became a really important motive for the rape and eventually murder. And going back to the remains as well, That's you right. mentioned was a huge part. The only way you could possess them, possess a person totally, yeah, was to kill them. Yeah, he said at first he started killing the women as a matter of expedience to eliminate the possibility of being caught, and later it became part of the the quote unquote adventure. The ultimate possession was, in fact, the taking of their life and then the physical possession of the remains. That's why he kept their heads. That's why he like yeah. hid their bodies and would go back and revisit them. He talked at once about in Utah when he uh, used to go back to visit Melissa Smith's body and apply makeup to her and uh, visit Laura Ames' body and wash her hair. And uh, the quote is, if you've got time, they can be anything you want them to be, when referring to his victims' dead bodies. It's too bad we didn't have real doll technology back then. Oh, he so could, he could murder it over and over and over again? Yeah, he could dress them up and wash its hair, do all unspeakable things to it. He could buy replacement heads and keep bashing it in. Bring back to the fact that he really didn't have any empathy for anybody whatsoever. On at least one occasion, he even tried to blame his victims. And quote, I have known people who radiate vulnerability in a 1977 letter to Klopfer. Their facial expressions say, I'm afraid of you. These people invite abuse by expecting to be hurt. Do they not subtly encourage it? Wow. I hadn't heard that one. He actually holds them responsible for having a victim mentality. Yeah. That he reads in their face it's that like, he can just understand that they want him to abuse them and murder them. Bunny remains a chief suspect in several unsolved homicides and is likely responsible for many others that will never be identified. In fact, in 1987, he confided to the officer Keppel that there were some murders that he would never talk about because they were committed too close to home, too close to family, or involved victims who were very, very young. Like, for instance, and there's a number of things that of murders that have occurred that have coincidences that seem a little too strong to not attribute them to Bundy. Like the fact that uh, an eight year old in Tacoma, Washington, vanished from her home in 1961 when Bundy was only 14 years old and that little girl's house was on his newspaper route. Wow. 
And then there's a number of other ones where people went missing while he was driving through town. Their gas receipts yeah. that link him to basically the same day that somebody went missing. Yeah, there's two victims that their gas receipts either in the town that they went missing from or in an adjacent town on yeah. the exact same day that they went missing. I mean, obviously, there's a chance that he wasn't involved, but yeah. it, it it certainly couldn't be proved in a court of law. Couldn't be proved in a court of law, but it sounds pretty su- suspect. Uh, as well, in 1966, there were a couple of flight attendants who were bludgeoned by a two-by-four in their apartment. Um, and one died and one suffered permanent brain damage. And it was the apartment building was like a block away from the Safeway where Bundy worked at the time. And it kind of sounds like his M.O. where somebody yeah. snuck in in the middle of the night and beat them with a blunt object. Yeah. There's a 24-year-old school teacher who was murdered in her apartment in Vermont in 1971. The apartment building was right next door to the home for unwed mothers where Bundy was born. Right. And in again, fact, could be coincidence. And Bundy had traveled to the East Coast between 1969 and 1971 several times. And mm-hmm. in fact, Anne Rule writes in her book that this is when Bundy discovered that he was not, in fact, brothers with his mother and that his mother was right. a mother. That he found evidence when yeah, he went to look through for his birth certificate. And birth everything. certificate, and that's when he found out the truth, and that was in Vermont. So there's evidence to suggest that he was in that area at the time. Can you imagine if you went to visit the home where you were born for unwed mothers, that maybe he was possessed with murderous rage? Totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I could imagine he would. I would just be like kind of sad. He's got 30 that they know of. Yeah. Probably in the range of six or seven that he committed that he just wouldn't cop to, that the coincidences seem almost too strong too strong yeah. to deny. Like, pretty much everybody agrees. But then, of course, you know, Bundy would make cryptic comments about, yeah. you know, oh, for every, for every murder I did that got noticed, I did another one that didn't get noticed. Uh, somebody said, oh, he probably has 36 to 38 victims, to which he replied, you should probably add another digit to that. He firmly belongs on our list of evil dudes in history. Yeah. Avatar, the Avatar, the Avatar, the Avatar, the Avatar, 
In the news, for 28 years, Bundy was widely believed responsible for the 1973 murder of Catherine Mary Devine, oh. a 15-year-old in Millersvania. Millersvania? That sounds Miller's scary. Millersvania. That sounds like Miller's... Dracula's beer. Yeah. But DNA analysis led to the arrest and conviction of William E. Cosden in 2002. William Brandon E. Cosden. Yeah. Brenda Baker, the 15-year-old runaway that Bundy murdered, was killed in the same park around the same time. Oh. What? Yeah. So there were two killers. Two unrelated killers in that area, same area at the same time. At the same time. Do not go to Millersvania, people. <laughs> State park. Yeah, William E. Cosden, I don't think, was uh, a prolific serial killer like, uh, like Bundy. So now, now we're coming to my proposed lesser of two evils. Bundy or Hitler? Hitler. Well, what's the question? Who's more evil? Well, the catalyst for the question was who's more evil? Like, it, literally the lesser of two evils. They're both evil. Okay. Which is the lesser of the two evils? I am more disturbed by the up close and personal that Bundy has to do. And the, the, it'll give me one thing if he came up, if it was a son of Sam and he came up behind somebody and shot them in the head and walked away. But the fact that he abducts them and tortures them and defiles them and ruins them and decapitates them and does it all probably with a smile on his face and a boner in his pants. I rank him. I rank him more evil than Hitler. I have two words for you, sir. Mm -hmm. Holocaust. Yeah. I mean, there's no denying that Hitler's evil. I have one word for both of you. Semantics. What does evil mean? Yeah. Is it about the amount of pain and suffering you cause? Because then it's Hitler. Well, I'm just saying that is it, it's uh, the things that happened to the Jews and various, you know, the homosexuals and all those other people in the Holocaust are pretty much just as horrible as the things that happened to yes. all these ladies. Right. True enough. But it's like the, the Stalin quote, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. It's true, but I don't. I don't really equate that to the I don't evilness. either, but that's. Yeah. I think that's what we're getting at here. Like, I agree with you. I agree with both of you. Like, it is creepier, the up close, and he did it and saw everything he was doing and like, didn't, not only didn't do care, I think, but enjoyed it, got off on it. Do I think, if given the opportunity, that Bundy wouldn't have killed, happily killed six million people with his bare hands? I think he would have. He'd have been perfectly happy to do that. He just didn't have opportunity. He didn't have a nation underneath him. He didn't have an army. That's a good point. So what you're saying is perhaps Hitler committed more evil, but Bundy was more evil. Sure. I think I can get behind that. And in that, I'm not answering the question one way or the other. Because <laughs> I'm Which saying... Which is your mandate. <laughs> Damn it. All right. Pop culture. 
there are a number of movies and television movies about Ted Bundy. They all sort of tell the same story. They all sort of follow the same arc. There's only one that I watched. Or which one did you watch? Deliberate Stranger with Mark Harmon. Oh, really? When was that one from? 1986. Okay. Based on the movie by this Times reporter who was featured as well in the movie, mm -hmm. Richard Larson. He wrote the book. He was uh, he had worked with Ted Bundy on the Republican campaign and everything like that. Right. Uh, so it was Mark Harmon as Bundy, M. Emmett Walsh as one of the police officers. Ooh, good actor. The uh, hippie captain from 21 Jump Street as another one of the oh, police yeah. officers. <laughs> Terry Farrell, who's Dax in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, was one of the victims. She had a she had a bit part. Oh, wow. She's not related to Perry Farrell in any way, shape, or form? No, but that's interesting you should say that because he's got that song. Jane's Addiction has that song, Ted Just Admit It. Wow. Which is... <laughs> Which is about Ted Bundy? Yeah. Oh, okay. The music is, is fine. The lyrics are more or less just nonsense. Oh, but, okay. it, is, but it is All about right. Ted Bundy. Okay. All right. Wait a minute. Perry Farrell? Nonsense? That's I know. shocking. <laughs> so I started watching this movie. I downloaded a few different Ted Bundy movies to watch. Uh -huh. And I just picked the one that downloaded first mm -hmm. to watch. What I didn't know when I started watching it is that it was a TV movie, although I should guess from the terrible synth soundtrack. <laughs> 1986 synthesizers were the shit but i got an hour and a half into it and i was like oh my god this is first of all this is terrible oh really you didn't enjoy it but i kept well i felt like i felt committed what'd you think of it so uh you give it a thumbs up marginal out of no, 10 no i would not recommend anyone watch this for any reason the problem i have with i assume is the fact for any ted bunny movie is there are really no sympathetic characters the person that you're going to be focusing on is Ted Bundy. Is Ted Bundy. Yes. Yeah, there's one thing that's said about this movie that it's very, and this is something that Ann Rule said, it was very authentic to everything that happened. Yeah. And uh, Mark Harmon did a good job of portraying Ted Bundy for the most part, except for that there was not, Ted Bundy in real life had this insecurity. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was the part of his personality that he honed. Yeah, that for public consumption. Which was like a front. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there was his actual real insecurities, and that was never really explored yeah. in the movie. Yeah, um, but it was very thorough. It went through pretty much all the victims we talked about. Yeah, um, it did kind of. They didn't talk about any of his upbringing or anything like that. They started in right when he's pretty much when he started murdering his yeah. first victim. So it, it's three hours you don't need to sit through. You just sat through this entire Caustic Soda episode, and for that I applaud you. <laughs> but I'd like to hear about your TV movie. Well, I end up working as one of the assistant directors on The Stranger Beside Me, which was based on the Anne Rule book. And now there are there are actually two TV movies based on the Anne Rule book, one from the 90s, which I had nothing to do with, and one from the early 2000s, I think 2003 or so. And this one is actually, it's told from Anne Rule's perspective, because she actually worked with Ted Bundy at the, the, suicide, crisis, hotline, the yeah. suicide Crisis Hotline. And that's where she met him, and they actually stayed friends. And they stayed in contact for years after Ted had left the hotline. And, uh, and, and in fact, Anne Rule was so familiar with him that she was one of the people, when the, when the, the profile came out in the press, that actually called yep. it into the police and tried to report him as the possible killer, right? Yeah. You're not a casual acquaintance if you know a person well enough to believe them to be a serial killer. The whole story is couched on that. It's like it stars Barbara Hershey, plays Ann Rule. Billy Campbell plays Ted Bundy. That, man, that guy can act. Like, he's a really excellent actor. They do touch on Bundy's 
insecurities, like how right. even though he's a good-looking guy and everybody sort of like gives him everybody gives him sort of leeway and an easy route and no one really like rides him that hard and right. stuff that he's sort of self-defeating, right? That he doesn't really, in spite of all the things that are sort of handed to him on a silver platter, he never takes advantage of any of them, right? right? They certainly shied away from gruesome depiction of the, of the murders. Like they would, you know, do, use cutaways and, yeah. you know, they would have him like abduct people and then they would, he would drive away and then they would cut to the next that's day something kind of stuff. Else, that's something that happened in uh, Deliberate Stranger as well that I was really, I kind of disappointed in a way. Like I don't necessarily want to see yeah. that aspect, but you really kind of diffuse the whole but yeah, I mean, yeah. drama, TV, the whole, the whole, you know, sick reality. TV and movies in 1986 were, did not have the kind of leeway that you do today. No. I guess we should mention that part of the Silence of the Lambs was clearly inspired by Ted Bundy in in terms oh, of the, 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 the part where Buffalo Bill lures the, the old oh, shoot, grubby, fuck girl <laughs> into, into the back of his van by helping him move his couch or whatever. Yeah, oh, and, he, yeah. and he was in a cast or and something like that. And he had like a that. cast yeah. on his arm and he ended up pushing her in there and traveling. Yeah, obviously directly inspired by, uh, by Bundy's techniques for yeah. sure. There are other movies, but I haven't seen them. So if you've got uh, information on these movies, you've seen them, feel free to go to causticsodapodcast.com and in the comments section of this episode, let us know what we missed. Let us know what we missed and uh, tell us what you thought of it. Give it a rating. Also bad, this movie. Also bad, this movie. <laughs> also bad, this movie. That's where Anne Rule met Ted Bundy. Shh, don't which spoil was the surprise. Okay. Uh, but the book was based on. Mm. <laughs> <laughs>